Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion. But we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybaitmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. with Robert D. Putnam, who is the Peter and Isabel Malkin Research Professor of Public Policy at Harvard University. In 2006, Professor Putnam received the Skype Prize, the world's highest accolade for a political scientist. And in 2012, he received the National Humanities Medal, the nation's highest honor for contributions to the humanities. Notable publications include Making Democracy Work, Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of American Community, Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis, and the upswing, how America came together a century ago and how we can do it again. Professor Putnam, thank you so much for taking time to talk. It's uh, very good to be with you, Rabbi. Thank you. Uh, by, the, by the way, I prefer to be called Bob. Okay, Bob, thank you so much. So to jump right in, are American divisions today along race, political, educational, and religious lines irreparable? And do you think we can heal from these divides? Well, nothing is um, nothing is fixed uh, in this world, but the point of our book called The Upswing, um, how America has been divided before and how we've overcome it. The point of that book is to look back at an earlier period in American history, about 125 years ago, um, at the close of what is in American history called the Gilded Age. The Gilded Age from roughly speaking from 1870 or 1880 until about 1900 was a period in America in which the gap between rich and poor was extremely large. The gap between the, the wealth gap between the folks living on the Upper East Side of New York in the mansions and those living on the Lower East Side of New York in the, in the uh, slums, um, mostly Jewish, mostly people from, from the shtetl who just moved to the States, that gap um, had hardly ever been that big in American history. Um, the, the degree of political polarization, the degree to which um, people from one party, the Republican Party, the Democratic Party collaborated was, well, the, the polarization was as high as it had ever been except for the Civil War. And therefore the degree of collaboration was very low. Um, the degree to which people were connected with one another, what I sometimes call social capital, that is the degree to which they were um, uh, connected in their families, in their neighborhoods, in their civic life of their community, the degree to which they trusted one another. That was all very low. We were very, very socially divided. And culturally, we were very much focused on me. That is, we were very self-centered as a, as a country. Um, all In all of those respects, it's almost, it's astonishingly identical to America now. America now is deeply polarized, deeply unequal, deeply socially isolated, and deeply self-centered, uh, narcissistic, focused on the me. 
Um, and we, in the book, talk about the, um, the cycle over this 125 years from a, an I society focused on number one, and we're not worried about inequality and not worried about, you know, and not getting along and so on, to a me society, or we, sorry, to a we society, which we reached actually quite remarkably in the middle 50s, 60s, 70s. And, and, and back now, now we're back down to an I society again. And the question is, sometimes people say, well, what happened up at the top, you know, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, that, can we reverse that? But in this book, we say, no, 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 the real, re real relevant part of American history is back at the beginning of that period, because those folks were, in, were caught in the plight that we are today, and we can learn lessons from how they got out of it, because they did get out of it. Great. So picking up right on that point, what are some of those moral lessons we can learn about how they got out of it? Exactly. Well, the first, somewhat surprisingly to me, I'm a social scientist, but somewhat surprising to me, the first um, the first thing that changed in the late 19th century, this was a kind of a leading indicator of what was to come, that is this upswing was to come, was a kind of a moral change in America. Um, it is a, a growing sense that we are all in this together and that we, when we, and that we have to focus on our moral obligations to one another. Um, and that showed up in religion. It showed up actually in, in what was called the, the um, uh, social gospel, which was a, a movement that was actually largely an evangelical Protestant movement, but it said to Americans, many Americans were Protestants in that period, um, read what the Bible says. Uh, the Bible uh, talks about how much we have to do for one another, not, not how wonderful it is to be rich. Um, and, but it wasn't only Christian. Uh, it certainly wasn't only Protestant. There was also a similar movement at the same time among Catholics and among Jews. There was a, a movement. And so that was the leading indicator. It wasn't the only thing, of course, but it was an early sign that maybe we could get out of this pickle we were in. Um, a second lesson is that um, the leaders of this movement, the progressive movement that turned it around, that pivoted so that we were no longer becoming more and more I, but more and more we, those were young people. Um, you think like, uh, you think of people uh, like Jane Addams famously founded Hull House, the, uh, the um, community center in, in Chicago and, and other, all of the, all the leading people there. We think of Jane Addams as an old woman, we see portraits of her when she was getting the Nobel Peace Prize and she was in her 70s or 80s. But the fact is she did her work when she was in her 20s. And in fact, almost all of the leaders of the progressive era were young people. And that's not surprising because the young people are the, old people may be able to see the problems, but young people are the ones who can get new ideas, break out of the old framework that has led us into this dead end. And that's true today too, I think. Signs like, like um, I mean, people like um, Greta Thunberg, the young um, Swedish woman who's leading the global fight against um, global warming, or these kids from the, the uh, Dorothy, uh, the, the high school in, um, in uh, who are leading the country in um, uh, opposition, you know, in the gun control movement. All those, that's the, that's what, I don't say we, we made the pivot now, but that's what it's going to look like. It's going to be, we're going to be led by young people. The yes, third, sir. I'm sorry, please. Yeah, the third one. Well, I was going to go through three or four lessons. Oh, yes, please do. Yes, please do. Yes. Um, a third lesson from that period is that the movement was a bottom-up movement, not a top-down movement. It, 
the great ideas did not, of that period, the new ideas did not come from Harvard or universities or Washington, DC. It came from small towns in the Middle West. I'll give you one really good example. In 1910, in some small towns in Iowa and Kansas, Nebraska, that part of the world, Americans, ordinary people, ordinary people, not academics, not politicians, ordinary people invented the high school. I mean it for the first time in world history, by high school, I mean a system in which every kid in town, just by virtue of being a kid in town, doesn't matter how wealthy he is, how smart he is, if you're a kid in this town, you get four years of free secondary education. It was a great idea. It didn't, it was bottom up and it was such a great idea that it went viral. And so within 20 years, virtually every community in America had a high school, all coming from this bottom up idea. Um, uh, in what one of the, one of the um, progressives uh, called the laboratories of democracy, these small states and localities and even neighborhoods. So that's another lesson, a, a, another important lesson of that period is that politicians were not the, not the leaders. The, even Teddy Roosevelt, who we think of in this period and was an important leader at the national level, he, he was building on things that had earlier on been developed by ordinary citizens and ordinary communities across the country. He was like the famous French revolutionary leader who said, there goes the crowd, I better get in front of them, I'm their leader. And so the politicians were last, I, they were important. I'm not trying to say that Teddy Roosevelt was not important, but they weren't the ones who created this uh, period. And last, and this, this is an important um, qualification. I've been praising these, th that period, and I mean it, there, there are a lot of their models for us. But one of the important um, characteristics of that period was that it was racist. The definition of we was, was um, not everybody in America, but the we that we were kind of building during that period was largely a white male we, not entirely. And in the book we talk, of, uh, in the book called The Upswing, we talk a lot about how race changed over the, this 125 years and how the role, of the, the role of women in American society changed over these years. Um, and it's not a simple story, but if there's any lesson in that domain from that earlier period, it's that this time, if we're going to pivot toward a new we society now, as I desperately hope we will, it's going to have to be a multiracial, much more capacious sense of we, not just a narrow group. And of course, you can have a narrow we. I mean, in some sense, the you know QAnon is a we. It's just a very hateful and very narrow we. What we need is a more capacious and open sense of we. And we can do that. I'm quite confident we can do it. But while taking lessons from this earlier period, the progressive era, I think um, uh, I think it's really going to be uh, important to have a new, a broader concept of we. Let me say just one last thing because we we both have to go. But one last thing that's relevant: um, religion is very important in this story. Um, I, I I happen I actually happen to be Jewish. I'm I converted to Judaism about six years ago. Um, and I'm very proud that I did. And, and at the time, people were a little skeptical about intermarriage, but um, my, our both, both our children, my wife is Jewish. Um, both our kids are uh, were bat bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. Um, our, our, our son married a non-Jew and she converted to Judaism. And all of our grandchildren, all seven of our grandchildren have been bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah. So I joke that 
we started with one Jew, namely my wife, and now we've got a I got a whole mishpocha uh, of of, uh, of of Jews. A, um, we can we can, you know we've got more than eleven we need to uh, to hold a service. Um, so. I, but I'm not like many Jews. I'm I'm not deeply religious. Um, I'm deeply committed to the community of Jews. That's the characteristic about Judaism as a religion. It's, it's as much a community as it is a theology. In that sense, that's personal background. But what I really wanted to say was, what you can see in this earlier period was that it religion played a deeply important role. And I don't mean theology. I mean the community, the fact that um, people. Um, had some sense that they had obligations to other people. That's the core of almost every religion in the world. And that is a crucial step. Now we know that not all religious people are open and tolerant. They all, many, I mean, in, indeed among Jews, there's, there are parts of Judaism that are very focused on a very narrow we, but the best of religion is focused on this encompassing sense of we. So just, just one last follow-up question on this sure. point you're making here. This question that that I and, and and obviously you and many others are thinking about how do we how do we make that shift from the I to the we and the social psychologists and the behavioral economic you know uh, economists and the and and the politicians with incentives have all their different views on this but from the realm of religion if we want to say we want to have a sense not only of a, a shift from I to we but an expanded sense of a we and that's going to emerge as you're saying in religious communities from a sense of obligation to the collective. How, it's not just from a powerful sermon. It's not just a great class. How, how can religious communities be a part of moving that forward? Well, um, I don't know. Look, I don't have any uh, easy answers to that. And I know actually that a large number of, of Jewish lay leaders and, and, and uh, rabbis and so on are thinking about the problem. So I don't want to hold myself out here as some you know, unique expert. My view is that morals are are felt and, um, and inculcated, not by lecturing, yeah. but by doing. That is, and, and that was one of the insights of the moralists in that earlier period that I talked about. Um, I can't remember, there's a brilliant quote from Jane Addams, not about religion, but the point is the same, that you, you change people's values, including your own values, not by talking, but by acting. Now, what does that mean? It means if you want to have a more capacious sense of we, it means not that you preach about it, but you behave in that way. And so there's all sorts of, I mean, this is, this leads to thinking about things like interfaith collaboration. It means thinking about um, in religious school, our religious school, I'm talking about in religious school in the in the congregation that I belong to, Temple Isaiah in Lexington, Mass. Um, our, I'm really, really proud of our congregation because first of all, we're leaders nationally actually in reaching out to, to other faith communities. Um, and that's come back as it does after the, the shooting, I mean, after the massacre in, um, in Pittsburgh, we had a lot of non-Jews standing around our temple, protecting our temple. I mean, and that was, so what goes around comes around. And, um, and so this inter these interface things are not just, you know, blah, 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 but they actually do inculcate in us and in the other people, these, this sense of obligation. And it's especially true for young people. And so I think the, the practical implications of what I'm saying 
for for you know managing a, a congregation is first of all pay a lot of attention to kids because that's really important but Jews are good about that but secondly pay a lot of attention not just to preaching it at uh, our young people but enabling them to learn the virtues of of um, of what I call social capital that is these connections across lines in their own lives does that make sense excellent it totally makes sense to me very powerful Thank you so much, Professor uh, Thank you. And, and friends, I, I deeply encourage you to, to pick up uh, the professor's books and, uh, and dive into this important work. Thank you. So Thank much. you very much.